Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis and joining me through the miracle of satellite technology, as always, is Matt Risby. Hi Matt, how's it going? It's going pretty well this end. I had a nice little holiday this weekend, went away Mm -hmm. to a uh, a little cottage in the middle of nowhere with some friends and um, was reminded that now we all are kind of old and married and have children, uh, I don't have children, that like all the people used to hang out and kind of like drink and get high with, it's all over at like 10.30 now and it's just a race Mm. to bed first, do you know what I mean? Um, Yeah. Age comes to us all is what I've learned this weekend. Um, (laughs) Kind of relentless. I'm now... I've gone through kind of like my uh, like early punchy stage of my film career, and now I'm in the kind of statesman-like retirement stage, and I'm ready to be put out to pasture. Yeah, I've I've had that experience because um, a group of my friends from not from uni, but kind of post uni, like everyone who after graduating from uni and kind of like settled in Sheffield and all lives in the same houses and whatnot, and would always go out drinking together. Now that everyone's moved away, they we we rent cottages and things in the Lake District or whatever for New Year's Eve and all hang out. And you can see the progression in only like the four or five times that we've done that, where it started out with everyone being like, we're just going to get wasted in a cottage and they don't have to clean up way to the last time being like, oh, you know, it's been a very full day and mm-hmm. let's just watch Jules Holland. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and then everyone can just kind of like slay, except for, for one of the friends who still got really, really drunk and missed New Year's Eve entirely because he was really, really just so pissed mm. that he didn't wake up until like 2 p.m. on New Year's Day. Mm. But we, we every, a, everyone else was a little more sedate <laughs> last time we did it. Uh, we had about an hour discussion as to whether like the boiler was a combi boiler or like an immersion <laughs> heater. Because and I didn't even know I was just kind of happy to be there and mm-hmm. just kind of nodding along sagely with the adults. Mm. And I'm cool with that. Like you know that expression, "Go big or go home." Like I would always go home um, <laughs> because you know why would I not? There's a cup of tea and like pajamas there. But like I was just thinking, oh, it's interesting. Like we're, we're finally here. We've reached the promised land that we uh, like we're that comfortable with each other and happy that you know we can just kick it back old school. Yeah, it's just it's just nice and. Um... There's not the, the when you don't have that like desire to just get fucked up every day, mm-hmm. which I think would very aptly describe like a good six or seven years of my life mm-hmm. from the age of like eighteen through to about twenty five. Uh, yeah, it's just kind of nice. Just everyone kind of like sits around, maybe has a glass of wine, mm. watches something on Netflix. It's like yeah, yeah this is this is nice. Yeah. <laughs> this is well, pleasant. Welcome to the podcast, getting old with Matt and Ed. <laughs> Uh, combi boilers is the uh, subject this week <laughs> but it was yes. interesting because uh, like my friends who um went away with they're kind of like my oldest dearest friends kind of known them for, mm. for kind of decades now and they were kind of they like sporadically listened to the show and they kind of said you know obviously we try and keep up with it week to week but you know we've got busy lives we've got kids and houses and combi boilers and all this kind of stuff <laughs> and um you know sometimes we're not quite up to date with the newest releases as you guys um, but I heard they said something really nice that like uh, they finally finished like Mad Men or something, 
Mm. And then they went back like three years through our archive to like say what we finally said because they couldn't listen to it at the time because it was spoilers and they were still halfway through it that they actually went all the way back and listened to it to see what we thought about it. But like all the news stories we said at the start were just completely irrelevant to yeah. anything that was happening now and like this kind of little time capsule that 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 kind of uh, we inhabit and in, on our little corner of the internet. I may have to go back and listen to it because I don't remember what we said about Mad Men either. I don't remember how this show started, Ed. So, yeah. you know, let alone what happened uh, two years ago. Yeah. So while you were having a nice time in the country, I was just fuming about uh, the Apple Corporation. That was my week. Mm. Um, what have the they done now, who... Ed? Oh, what haven't they done? <laughs> uh, uh, this, I mean, this isn't the worst thing they've done. I mean, like, there's, like, factory workers in China who probably think that this is pretty mild in terms of their offences. But they recently... Uh, assuming that happened or if that was just a fraud. I kind of forget how that This American Life story played out. Mm. Um, but they released an iOS update, which updated the I, the podcast app, which I've been dutifully using ever since I no longer had to manually transfer podcasts from my iTunes library to my, my uh, iPod, mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, in the, the bad old days of a very laborious thing of wanting to listen to like Battleship Potemkin, uh, Pretension and having to just transfer everything into a playlist. Mm-hmm. And they changed it, and uh, it's such a terrible change and such a wildly user-unfriendly uh, app now that I've basically had to completely delete every podcast I listen to off of it and download a third-party app because the current one now, instead of allowing you to continuously play every podcast that you listen to in the order in which it was downloaded forces you to manually play every podcast you want to listen to and also displays them in a random order that I can't fathom, Mm. including like, hey, do you want to listen to this podcast from September of 2015? No. Mm -hmm. Or, hey, this podcast you listened to one episode of because you wanted to listen to them talk about Moonlight immediately after it won the best picture. Has a new episode, are you interested? No, because I listened to one episode of this podcast nine months ago. And uh, as someone who uh, whose job, where, you know, the thing that pays my bills is to make sure that software works and is user-friendly, mm. I'm convinced that no human was involved in the design of this app. Mm. Uh, it does seem to have been in- created either for a computer program or a Billy Pilgrim-style human who has become unstuck in time and doesn't want to enjoy anything in a kind of a linear chronological fashion Mm. it's it's utterly maddening Mm. Uh, and so after 10 years of having to just go like right what's an app that works people please tell me yeah it's it's typical apple though isn't it because i remember many moons ago uh what would be like 15 years ago when i first got Mm. itunes on my little you know the apple mac that was all in one the first imac um, and I was like, well, this is a really user-friendly piece of uh, software. And then mm. every update since then has just been deconstructing um, everything that was good about it. And like with every update of anything kind of that's Apple's own, it's like you finally got used to where it was moved to or what it did before when it actually worked nicely for you. And it's like, bang, we've hidden that for you now. So good luck, asshole, is, mm. seems to be the the kind of... Uh, attitude that apple have and you know i just won't take it anymore and i will just continually use itunes um uh, repeatedly and slavishly um but the podcast that thing is a thing that i um don't use that much uh because i tend to kind of listen to a lot of stuff uh like through the the kind of browser 
Um, but now I'm definitely not going to listen to anything through it. I take you at your word, Ed, that that's a terrible piece of software. Yeah, it's just... I think the problem that Apple have, and this is true of pretty much the entire tech industry, other than the fact they've decided no one enjoys looking at anything in a chronological order when, like, that's how humans encounter the world. So obviously that's how you want to see your Instagram feed. You don't want it to be jumbled up. So it's like, oh, here's a picture that your friend took in on October the 9th, and here's one that was taken by a different friend five minutes ago. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> and you just get wildly confused about the nature of time. Mm. Um, their problem is that they believe that you need to constantly be iterating and that if you're not changing something, you're not doing your job. And they refuse to acknowledge that maybe sometimes you do get it right. And just because something is old and primitive, that means that it needs to be changed. And this kind of gets to like the joke about people in Silicon Valley is like every two weeks, someone in Silicon Valley invents the bus. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like they stumble across like, hey, wouldn't it be really good if you had Uber? But it was like for a lot of different people and they could just hop on. And it's just kind of mm-hmm. like, yeah, that literally exists and has existed for hundreds of years, you dicks. Mm. And that is that is the problem <laughs> that Apple have. It's like they constantly need to be giving you updates. I think, oh, we need to change this. And they don't seem to have any care about whether or not that change will be in even remotely good it kind of also plays into like broader media things about like websites pivoting to video and she's like no one wants to watch a fucking three minute video about a news story when they could read a, a fucking article that gave them more information mm, yeah and it's and also in line with websites and tech companies just being apparently deaf to what the users want which is mm. either to not change it or to change something different like twitter mm. twitter is a great example where you're like you know you know, can we thread tweets, please? Can you sort replies out, and can you get rid of the Nazis? And they're like, "Hey, mm. two hundred eighty characters." <laughs> Just, oh, great! <laughs> Thanks for that. Yeah, you get to see the in case you missed it. So you get to see like the abuse that was being hurled out like four hours ago. It's like, yeah, I really didn't need to see that. Mm. Uh, I wish you hadn't done that. And yeah, I don't need. I really don't need an hundred, an extra hundred and forty extra characters. Mm. Yeah, right. So we've covered the podcast app and um, <laughs> the combi boilers and getting old, having <laughs> having a stiff hip in cold weather. What's going on in the news this weekend? Well, we'll start off with a light story because uh, I mean, like all the news has been terrible, and there is still some terrible news to come. But uh, I was uh, quite pleased to see that Jane Lynch is going to be getting her own kind of daytime talk show. Mm. which I think is quite interesting because, A, she's like hugely talented, charismatic performer, and I'm happy to see her getting work. But also how strange it is that her career post-Glee, which was kind of a... She's obviously been around for a very, very long time, and people who knew her from Christopher Guest movies were very much of, of the kind of the view as like, why isn't Jane Lynch a bigger star? She's just so good in everything. But Glee was this really kind of scabrous... Uh, abrasive performance that was really refreshing in what was otherwise could be a very kind of distressingly uh, syrupy TV show and it's just very strange that since then her biggest success have been Hollywood Game Night which is just like hey celebrities do party games for fun which has been on for like six years at this point and now moving into kind of like Ellen territory uh, I just find it very interesting that that seems to be that, that you know if you'd asked me when Glee was at its height what her career going forward would be like those wouldn't have been the options i would have pointed to Mm. given that she was the breakout star of that show they've Mm. tried to make try maybe whether it's trying to squeeze like trying to repeat the same thing or trying to kind of squeeze a square peg into to round holes because she's had a couple of pilots 
that have kind of started and not got off the ground. And yeah. I believe that she had the last one that failed was like developed around her personality specifically, uh, mm-hmm. not just she was cast in a show. Um, and it just seems that for whatever reason, they just can't make Jane Lynch break out, even though she was the breakout star of Glee. Um, mm. She's kind of fairly happy to do kind of smaller parts in movies and stuff. But yeah, I'm kind of surprised that it's ended here. I mean, it's cool. Like, you know, I think it'll be a fun show to watch, but um, yeah, not where I saw that going. And and you do wonder if part of it is just that there aren't really that many roles for kind of middle-aged women, middle-aged gay women in Hollywood. Mm. And the sense that maybe the bet, you know, she should kind of grab with both hands, you know, the, the thing that comes through that seems like the most sustainable thing. And I think after, you know, years of being a jobbing actress who shows up in things or, or being in like critically acclaimed shows that don't do very much like Party Down, mm-hmm. uh, being given the chance to be in a admittedly brief lift, brief lived phenomenon like Glee, uh, and then being told, hey, you can get steady work just doing like a chat show and a game show at night. That's got to be pretty, pretty uh, enticing you just think oh i don't have to do another pilot season i don't have to like worry about whether or not shows are going to get picked up if it's going to be nope you're going to be on the air pretty much every day or you know every for a couple of hours and it's going to be this set thing every time Mm. and you'll you'll end up being beloved as well as is Mm. it tends to be the way with the with the stars in that mold yeah yeah they just become part of people's lives and they're kind of like the the backdrop of their existence in the same way that someone like an ellen did where you know, she's pretty much just a staple of American culture at this point in a way that wasn't guaranteed, you know, when she started as a uh, as a stand-up or even after her sitcom. Mm-hmm. The fact that she is has this level of cultural ubiquity is something that uh, is, is kind of rare and seems to be uniquely suited to being someone who, uh, you know, appears on people's TV shows every day. Mm, yeah, yeah. A warm kind of voice and friend in your living room, I imagine. Mm. Mm. Uh, in other news, uh, we, we talked a little bit about Netflix when we came back and, you know, it's kind of in constant, uh, a constant source of uh, befuddlement and irritation for the both of us, I think, just because it's so ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. But uh, they announced this week that next year they're going to be heavily investing in original content, more so than they already do. And I think they were going to invest like $8 billion or something into original content and they're going to produce... Uh, 80 original movies next year which considering that they don't do a great job of promoting their original movies now uh, seems overly ambitious and foolish yeah it's a weird thing that you've got the traditional business model of studio x makes movie announces movie people get excited about movie they film the movie, they hype the movie, you see the movie, you either like it or you don't. Whereas mm. Netflix are like, we're going to spend loads of money on stuff. Uh, well, unless it's in very specific like cases that you don't hear about it, and then it just appears on your thing, on your mm. Netflix, and you're like, oh shit, when did they do this? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then you're like, oh, I don't even know if this is supposed to be any good or not. I'm just going to watch it and see. Mm. And then you're like, oh, okay. what What's happened? Oh, there's another one. Um, and then that's going to happen. Like uh, with the exception of uh, Bright, I think you know that David Ayer movie um, mm-hmm. written by Max Landis. Uh, that's a combo that I'm 
eager to not enjoy. <laughs> um, like, that's the only Netflix movie in the last two years of their production that I've actually heard. Any, maybe it be Beasts of No Nation, because that was like their first big one, right? The first big yeah. non-documentary or whatever. Um, and I was like... I've not heard anything about any of these movies that they're making. They're just gonna mm. they're just gonna appear, and I'd have I'd have like be like, oh okay, yeah, I guess. Like there was one with there's I noticed there's one with like Robert Redford and Jane Fonda on here mm-hmm. on I like and it's just it's called Arseholes at Night, <laughs> which is a terrible yeah. title. <laughs> um, if you're uh, uh, have a British accent, um, yeah. the it's and I was just like, Wait, what? Like, I didn't even know this was going on. And I, I'm not like, you know, I don't work for the Hollywood Reporter or anything, but I feel like I've got my finger somewhere near the pulse. Mm. But, you know, uh, yeah, like you say, they do a lousy job of promoting their films, a lousy job of letting you know it happens. You hear about their acquisitions a lot. Yeah. Like, you know, they bought this movie to whatever. They're going to be the first people to stream it. But in terms of their original content, it just kind of happens. And I think they probably need to change that. Yeah, like, because around Sundance and the big film festivals when they're, uh, everyone's trying to buy things. Yeah. There's always that sense of like, oh man, this movie's getting great buzz. Oh, it's been bought by Netflix. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> it's it's not going to get a theatrical release. It's not going to get a big, uh, you know, TV campaign uh, because Netflix tend not to really, other than advertising the existence of Netflix as a service generally mm-hmm. by like saying, hey, look at all these buzzy shows we have and these movies that also we have, but mm-hmm. that no one ever talks about there's not really much they don't do much to push those movies i mean maybe you'll get embedded ads or whatever but because embedded ads are usually related to stuff that you have already interested in it's maybe not the most uh, effective method mm-hmm. but it really is it's dependent on you really need to be plugged into like film twitter to know that oh gerald's game is getting really really good reviews oh it's on netflix you know, if you didn't know these things existed, you could completely miss them. Like, I had to search for the Maya Rowitz stories, mm-hmm. the new Noah Baumbach movie, which uh, Netflix uh, acquired and which went up a few weeks ago. I had to search for it on the day that it came out because it wasn't immediately apparent where it was and it didn't get recommended to me based on my searches, even though I've watched multiple Noah Baumbach movies on Netflix. Mm. And multiple uh, Adam Sandler movies, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, obviously. Uh, you know, Sandy Wexler, it's a modern masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really is like all of the, the like the, the gag that everyone has made about the Adam Sandler produced movies that go onto Netflix is like, oh, man, at least I don't have to see adverts for these or think about these ever again because they're not going to be in, in theatres and I don't have to like contend with them in any way. Mm. Uh, but that is basically the same thing that's happened to every one of their movies, including all the good ones. It really is a case that they just end up being ignored unless critics really kind of rally around them. And even then, it's it's more like something like Tangerine, where it got a theatrical release and wasn't a Netflix movie, but it hit Netflix and suddenly everyone was like, hey, you should watch this, because it only played in a few theatres and finally everyone can see it. It doesn't, that level of passion rarely seems to emerge for Netflix's own stuff. Mm. It feels a little bit like, you know, they've taken over a library and just tipped mm. all the books out onto the street and just said, good luck. And you're like sorting <laughs> through kind of like Ford Escort manuals to get to, you know, Crime and Punishment or whatever. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, they could probably, there's probably a reason they do it. I don't know. 
I don't know, I can't even fathom what it is. I don't want to make excuses for these people, but it'd be good to like actually hear about the movies that you're making. That'd be great. That's not the David Ayer slash Max Landis one, because um, although I will inevitably watch it, um, um, it will be because I'm looking for something else. <laughs> um, and yeah, um, like that, I can't believe that's the one that's getting the heat. Whereas, like, if you think about how they approach their TV shows, like, when's the first time you heard about the second season of Stranger Things? Like, like what, a year like ago. A year ago. And, yeah. yeah, that's been, you know, hyped to fuck. Anything to do with the Defenders, you know, I know more about Iron Fist than I do about the new Noah Baumbach, which is <laughs> not something that, it's not a position I want to be in, Ed. No, no one wants to be in that position. No. It's, uh, it's a terrible one. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it's just their priorities. Considering how much money they are putting into originals, their priorities when it comes to like film and versus TV are just so completely out of whack. It's kind of horrifying considering that they are in many ways, like the cultural arbiters of what is kind of hip and happening in culture nowadays, Mm -hmm. because everyone has Netflix. They have not every show or movie they come out with hits. Most of their movies don't hit, but you know, occasionally they'll have like a, a house of cars or stranger things, which becomes a big deal. And everyone gets really excited about it and becomes something of a phenomenon because everyone has Netflix and everyone can watch it. Like their, the amount of money they put into creating original stuff versus how much money they then seem to put into actually pushing it or coming up with some way of just basically saying, hey, this is a new thing you might like, which they don't really seem to have thought about very much, uh, is, you know... It's criminal, is what mm, it is. <laughs> yeah, and um, our kind of next news story that we were going to talk about, kind of just lead in for us, is that this week it was announced that um, Riz Ahmed, um, mm. the uh, who we we enjoy the work of, um, mm, he is so. yeah he is uh, going to play Hamlet for a new adaptation on Netflix, and mm. no doubt we'll have to search for that on the day of release. <laughs> um, um, kind of passing through. Uh, all the chaff to find that particular piece of wheat, which is, yeah, I mean, that's an exciting project announcement. Um, but yes, whether it will kind of fall by the wayside like everything else, I'm not sure, but I'm certainly excited by the prospect. Yeah, I, I am as well. I mean, that sounds like a great combination of actor and project. And I am very, very excited that uh, that Netflix are putting money into projects that maybe wouldn't get made anywhere else or wouldn't really have much of a commercial uh attachment to it i think if you look at something like casting jean benet the documentary that came out this year which was like a very sort of almost avant-garde attempt to uh, uh, account of like doing a true crime doc and was very much something that you wouldn't expect to see on netflix or that most people would take a chance on like it's great that they do stuff like that mm-hmm. but there's just a lot of stuff that uh you know, I don't know how much of an impact that movie made. I don't know how much they pushed it. It didn't seem to be all that much, in in all honesty. And, you know, if they are willing to put invested, interesting directors, which they clearly are because they, they got Noah Baumbach to make a movie mm-hmm. uh, for them, you would hope that they would then say, hey, you know, maybe people will actually want to see this thing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Scorsese's making a movie for them. Like, are we going to yeah. see, like, TV spots for that? Um, you think you would yeah and like Scorsese's getting up there in years you know if if that ended up being his swan song because he decided you know that he wanted to to enjoy like his last few years or whatever uh you know would it be a case that the last major work by one of the great 
American filmmakers of the 20th century ends up being just buried in the deluge of content on a Friday when it's like, oh, you could watch this new movie by an American master or six stand-up specials or this animated series from Australia that no one's ever heard of and is terrible. <laughs> uh, you know, like the the glut of stuff that Netflix put out and the frequency makes it very, very hard, even for critics who want to, say, to champion movies to really spotlight stuff. Yeah, yeah. And like you, his new film's called The Irishman, isn't it? Like, yeah, you probably don't want to search for that on Netflix because it'll probably just pop up like, you know, Ed Byrne stand-up specials or something. <laughs> but like, I mean, it, Ed Byrne's reasonably funny. I was just trying to pick a an Irish comic out of nowhere. Um, yeah, but they're all good <laughs> ones I can think of. <laughs> uh, I don't know, Mrs. Brown's Boys. Oh shit! Yeah, that's more what happened. Yeah, <laughs> you put that in, or like you put Joe Pesci's name in, and like eight heads in a duffel bag comes up. Um, yeah, and no one wants to see that again. Not even no. Joe Pesci's mum. <laughs> and finally, for this week in the news, uh, unsurprisingly, given the recent news, uh, it's a sexual harassment story this time around. James Toback, who is a, a filmmaker and writer, probably most famous for being nominated for an Oscar for writing the screenplay for the movie Bugsy with uh, Warren Beatty. Not a kind of a household name, but someone who's directed a lot of movies over the years. They've got attention. Uh, Fingers, I think, is probably one of his most famous ones, or The Gambler from the seventies. Black and white, uh, I think, from for like more and the, the the Tyson documentary as well. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, or uh, Seduced and Abandoned, I think, was one of his, like a documentary about him going to Cannes with Adam Baldwin trying to... Uh, Alec Baldwin. Adam Baldwin. That would have been even weirder. Uh, with Alec Baldwin, where they try and pitch a, a non-existent movie to investors. Um, so he's he's someone who's kind of been around for a long time, and, and the LA Times reported a story saying that about 38 women had gone on the record, or 31 women had gone on the record about him... Uh, committing numerous acts of sexual harassment and sexual assault over many, many years, y- usually like young actresses who he would essentially go up to people and say, hey, I'm James Toback, have you heard of me? And they would say no, obviously. <laughs> uh, and then he would like talk about the people he'd work with and then produce an article about himself. Like everything about it was just very kind of sad and pathetic and desperate and yeah, and, and awful. But the... Uh, the the upshot of it all is that you know all these things which have kind of again like the Harvey Weinstein stuff is something of an open secret people knew that he was this guy who was very predatory towards women and there are all these horrible stories about him uh, masturbating in front of of actresses even including one actress whilst they were filming a scene for a movie which is like awful in just so many ways <sighs> mm. uh and this kind of like what the reason we're talking about this obviously because you know this is there's going to be lots of these stories over the next couple of years it seems but the the thing about toback in particular that i find really interesting in relation to the harvey Weinstein stuff is they're both cases of men who have peaked in a like years ago harvey weinstein more recently because uh, he's only really kind of lost power in Hollywood and influence over the last couple of years. But James Toback's like never been a particularly powerful figure, but because he was a director and because he held a bit of power, uh, he was able to abuse women for a very, very long time. And you get that sense that the reason why he can be taken down now is because he is something of a fringe figure. And you do worry that those are the people who are going to get taken down as opposed to people who have genuine power in Hollywood currently who are known to be or suspected to be abusers uh, who just don't get taken down because they still get movies made. Mm, they've got power and they're kind of 
successful and they've got more to lose than someone like Toback who's like in his 70s and you know you'd be hard pressed to name a good film in his CV he made a sympathetic mm. documentary about Mike Tyson which is something of a red flag yeah <laughs> that would have the alarm bells ringing for me um but yeah I mean like yeah chuck him on the bonfire um yeah yeah like good but like you I think there is a worry that this will blow over um, mm. unless, you know, they kind of bring down someone big, I guess, someone who yeah. is uh, um, kind of a bit more prominent. Weinstein's a big name because his influence goes quite far, but I mean, I mean, this would have been kind of critical to Hollywood survival in a way if he'd have been pulled down in like the height of the Miramax years. Um, yeah. But I mean... The Weinstein Company now is a thing, but nowhere near as influential as as Miramax was, and you know he mm. is on the wane, as it were. Um, yeah. But I kind of yeah, like it's another name, it's another it's another victory, I guess. Um, but it does feel a little bit like we're kind of picking off the low hanging fruit uh, mm. at the minute, and I kind of uh, uh, I, I don't want. I want I want it like James Toback to be the last guy, and they'd be like, "Yes, we've got them all now, um, mm. and this will never happen again." But like, I know that's not true, and you know, it's going to keep happening until the people in power keep getting away with it, which is, you know, the tragedy. Mm. Uh, and also, in in kind of a, a evolution of the Harvey Weinstein story, there were a couple of directors who owe their careers in a great extent to Harvey Weinstein, who spoke out this week. We had Quentin Tarantino, who essentially said i knew about things and didn't say anything mm-hmm. which is better than saying oh i never saw anything i had no idea yeah. i worked with a guy for 20 something years and then this never came up uh so at least he's kind of admitting i could have done more but also is like a super shitty thing to say uh regardless and kevin smith said that he is going to donate all of his royalties going forward from the movies he made for for Weinstein during the the 90s and the early 2000s to uh Women in Film which is a non-profit that you know aims to boost women in the film industry which uh yeah it's good <laughs> like uh we we've given Kevin Smith a lot of shit over the years mm. and I would say rightly so but uh that is uh a that's a stellar move on his part yeah yeah all his his, his residuals isn't it the other kind of like uh kind of uh, fees for licensing from around the world or whatever you mm. just get a little bit of money every year and i think that's a great gesture um and it's it's one thing coming out and saying oh this is terrible and condemning it is another thing to literally put your money where your mouth is and i know that mm. kevin smith isn't exactly like a billionaire chucking around money but that's something like he's doing something whereas the tarantino yeah. thing is like like you say he fucking knew he said it, but like when he's when he came out and said it, the first my first thought of reading his statement was like, that's really shitty. Like you mm. knew you you didn't do anything. Um because he was back in your movies. He was like mm. getting your movies made. Then at the same time, like Tarantino came out and told the actual absolute truth, which in a way is like like you say, it's better than saying, Yeah, yeah, dunno, mate. I never heard of never heard a peep out of anyone saying there was anything suspicious going on, uh, which is what a lot of people have done. So he's been kind of like pilloried and applauded in equal measure this week. Um and I'm still not entirely sure where to stand on it because 
he kind of stood to lose a lot if he'd have said something, um, which kind of puts his personal gain over his, over principle, which is not a great thing to do. But then to mm. come out years later and say, well, I could have done something. It's, it's not a good look, really. Mm, I watched a documentary yesterday called uh, Sold Out Cinema Under Occupation, which is like a short documentary about the people who worked in the French film industry during the Vichy era. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things about it that was really uh, kind of depressing is like seeing all these names of like revered people from the French French, uh, film industry, like, you know, Jean Cocteau and stuff like that, who made movies essentially that were propaganda or at the very least didn't do much to kind of fight against the the, the, uh, occupying regime. And it was very much that sense of like, mm, I mean, I can, you know, how else were they going to get money, I guess? How else were they going to live during this? They're doing, they, you know, they were compromising and they may not believe these things, but they had to eat, whatever. But at the same time, you think, yeah, you're still making movies for people who are in bed with the Nazis, you know, like you can justify it all yourselves, but you still did like an awful thing. And that's kind of, you. that's the same way that you feel about someone like Tarantino coming through and saying, you know, oh, I could have said something. And you think, well, I can, I can see why you would not speak out it's a very human thing to think well you know i could destroy my career and nothing would get done because of you know the systemic oppression that exists but at the same time it's like you know you're not going to get brownie points for speaking out now Mm, after your second oscar do you know what i mean yeah 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 it's the same same with like um i saw it brought up in something i hadn't really thought about the peter biskind who wrote um easy rider raging balls did a a kind mm. of a, a book called Down and Dirty Pictures, which was the story of the kind of the post Sundance boom and Tarantino and the Weinsteins and the whole shebang. And like he was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah." Um, didn't really see anything. Just like mm. what? Like you know, as much as some of the stuff that he writes in Easy Rider, Raging Boys could say like flights of fancy or speculation. Like he knows like where the bodies are buried, as it mm. were, and the fact that he didn't kind of managed to uncover anything during the Weinstein era. Yeah, it sounds suspect to me. Yeah, definitely. So that's the news. Yeah. <laughs> right. There's not really any there's not really any elegant segue into the regular topic. Uh but, you know, we we talk about film news on this program and that's what's happening at the moment. So mm. So that's where we are. Uh so this week's show, I mean, this is this was inspired by our talk about Blade Runner 2049 a few weeks ago when we were talking about how uh, we both felt that we had been wrong about the original Blade Runner to an extent, like neither of us were that enthusiastic about it. And then we both watched it in advance of the sequel and we're like, oh no, this movie is actually really good. And it suddenly clicked for both of us. Mm -hmm. And so that got me thinking about like, what movies have, were we wrong about? at various points in our career, in our lives and career, I guess, because we both blogged about movies for a while. Uh, what movies did we, were we like really enthusiastic about for, for a time, for, for whatever reason? And then when we look back, it's like, maybe not so much. <laughs> maybe not so much. Or which ones did we like dismiss out of hand? It's like, ah, that was terrible. And then suddenly, like years later, you rewatch and think, oh no, this is like a masterpiece and I was an idiot. Mm. Uh, and so that's what this episode is going to be about. It just does kind of flagellating ourselves uh, or uh, expressing kind of our own sense of personal growth over the time as as, as people and uh, as cinephiles. Mm. So uh, what was what's the first kind of film that came to your mind, Matt? Well, I, I kind of 
thought about it in terms of like the why rather than the mm. what. And for me personally, um, I think personal maturity has like a huge part to play on whether yeah. you um, kind of can get a film or not. And um, I kind of look back and I've been using Letterboxd for quite a few years now. I've, I've kept like a daily film diary since 2009. And then mm. Letterboxd is a, is a website and now app that launched a few years ago, which kind of allows you to do that with, a, with kind of a couple of clicks. And I transferred my old Excel spreadsheets and notes of pages onto Letterboxd over one super fun weekend. Um, and <laughs> now I kind of know every film I've seen in the last kind of seven or eight years, plus kind of have slowly been adding films to my like watch list that I have seen in my entire life. And I just kind of look back over these and I thought, well, and I've rated them as well out of five, which is, you know, something that kind of nerds do. And I was mm-hmm. thinking like, what's, what's at both ends of that spectrum for me and why? And there are a bunch of films at the the five star end of the spectrum that like I didn't really fully understand when I saw them the first time round, um, and I admired them because they were obviously good. But in terms of unpackaging them and uh, being mature enough to understand it, it took time. So th- like the four films that I've written down are Apocalypse Now, mm. Vertigo, uh, In the Mood for Love, and There Will Be Blood, which are all like amazing, great films. Uh, but the first time I saw them, I was just like, yep, that's clearly a good film. And then just kind of left it at that because it was they were perhaps more opaque. And mm. my initial reaction was I didn't really like it, but I kind of thought it was good. Mm. So if you asked me as I came out of the cinema, my reaction would to all four of those films would be like, meh, I guess that was good. But now it's like, oh, shit, those films are actually amazing. And at mm. the 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 one star end of the spectrum is just really shitty movies, because <laughs> um, yeah. I think it's easier to judge a bad film than it is to judge a really good film because, like you know, some things are objectively good. Um, but going through the kind of the list of stuff like that, like perhaps I was um, like when you're a little younger and you think, well, um, this film is obviously incredible, but then when you get older, mm. the kind of cynicism thing kicks in. So, like, for example, uh, Boys in the Hood, when I was younger, I thought that film was amazing. And then when you get mm. a bit older, you're like, this is quite heavy-handed. Mm. Yeah, I kind of had that with the, the the movie that I thought of that definitely fits into that would be American Beauty, mm. which is a movie that I still think is is very, very well made, and I think there are, like, really, really good performances in it. But, like, when I first saw that, and that came in 1999, so I probably would have seen it in, like, 2000, so it would have been about 14 or 15. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, 13 or 14, rather. Uh, I remember watching that thinking, this is amazing! <laughs> the way that the way that they're capturing the sense of ennui. Uh, I may not have used that word, although, I don't know, I was very precocious. Um, you know, this kind of that sense of, like, oh, and, like, you know, Kevin Spacey's talking about masturbating in the shower. It's like, it's all this stuff that you, you don't usually see in movies. And this one, best picture, amazing. And like, then like years later, you think, hmm, this is all very on the nose yeah. <laughs> as far as satire goes. And there are lots of movies that have done like the ennui thing there. It's like when you watch, like then like a few years later, like watching The Graduate, it's like, oh, right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> People have been making movies about ennui in American suburbia and repressed American sexuality for a long time. And, and they often do it with a, a defter hand than Sam Mendes and Alan Ball. Mm, yeah, I think um, 
American Beauty, that's a very good example of what I was saying about those other films, There Will Be Blood Apocalypse Now, Vertigo, and In the Move for Love, that when mm. I saw them, I was like, well, a lot of people are talking about this. These are kind of award-worthy films, and these are kind of classics, and you think, oh, they, mm. they must be good. Maybe I'm just yeah. not quite getting it. And uh, I think American Beauty was the same. It was like, that. you know, it was a big kind of Oscar uh, movie that year, and you saw it, and you're like, well, there's something good about it, I guess. Um, but then, yeah, you watch it years later and you're like, that's just pretty much a middling movie um, that's mm. slightly better than what was out, the rest of what was out that year. Which I don't even think that's necessarily true because, like, 1999, when you look at it, it was like a real banner year for American cinema. And there were lots of... It was maybe a, one of the better ones nominated for Best Picture that year. But when you consider it was the year that also gave us, like, The Iron Giants or whatever. Uh, or... Like just like there was just like a slew of these like really great movies which were either really praised at the time or like years later people would discover. Uh, I don't even think that American Beauty was really that near the top, but it was one that for whatever reason really connected with audiences uh, in that kind of pre-millennium sense of, you know, like people talk about when you get to the end of a century, there's this kind of period of dread and madness and people start kind of thinking oh it's really momentous Mm. and something about american beauty uh, and you know like the end of the 90s people maybe assessing where the country is at that moment in time really seems to connect to people in a big way Mm. but viewed out of that context you're getting "Mm, like it's good at expressing a lot of these things, but like maybe Fight Club did that a little better. Mm. Although Fight Club's also a movie that like I now look back and think mm, this wasn't this wasn't as as good as I thought it was in 1999. But in terms of like delving into uh, like pre millennium dread, uh, I think it it maybe makes a stronger case for itself. Mm. I will I will uh, like go with you on the fact that 1999 was a banner year for Hollywood cinema, but yeah. And I, I found this out the other day, and I'm going to bring it up as evidence to which the fact that Hollywood seemed to be blind to all the good films that were made in 1999, that the mm-hmm. uh, the five films nominated for Best Picture that year were American Beauty, mm. The Cider House Rules, mm. The Green Mile, mm. The Sixth Sense, <laughs> and The Insider. I like The Insider a lot. Yeah, that's but a good I mean, that's, one. that's one really good movie out of five yeah and sixth sense i think works very well and you can see why for a brief window of time like m night Shyamalan could appear on the front cover of time and be called the new spielberg yeah. like a movie like that which really connected with the audience and became like like similar to the matrix which also came out that year something that was instantly part of the zeitgeist and was kind of parodied and stuff mm-hmm. uh and it was something that you know people would say i see dead people's like oh yeah i know exactly what you're talking about because everyone knows this thing uh instantly yeah uh but yeah it's that's not that's not a great crop of nominees considering there was a lot of really great work happening under the surface yeah, I mean, like, uh, Magnolia was out that year, um, mm-hmm. Election was out that year, Being John yeah. Malkovich was out that year, um, wow. Toy Story 2 was out that year, um, yeah. Star Wars Episode 1, The Phantom Menace, was, no, that's uh, Classic. clearly a joke. Um, <laughs> but I mean, there was uh, Topsy Turvy. Um, oh, great movie. That's a good movie. Um, yeah, there was a whole bunch of good stuff that was released in that year but like yeah it didn't seem to uh 
Sweet and Low Down was out that year. That's a good movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like nothing, nothing seemed to stick. That was uh, it. Was all just the, the this is the the complaint you have about the Oscars. They pick the 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 kind of stuff that appeals to geriatric um, kind of straight white people. Mm, yeah, and with the with American Beauty, it's just kind of like all these kind of. I guess it's kind of like all the new Hollywood guys who are all just like getting on in years or middle age is kind of like saying, I see myself in Kevin Spacey's character, but you know, that it, it, maybe there is some of that as well. It's like, it's a very Academy friendly take on, you know, middle-class on we. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the other big factors of like, like changing your mind about a film or being wrong about a film, which is prominent um, is nostalgia. Mm. Um, that's one that can kind of, haunt you in the in the um in the sense that there's quite a few films from my youth i don't want to see again because yeah. i know they're probably shit but i just rather right. keep keep it in my heart mm-hmm. which which ones in particular do you think this is probably this is probably not up to snuff um well i think it's probably still good but i don't want to take the chance but the explorers the joe dante film um, right with young Ethan Hawke, I used to love that movie when I was a kid because, like, mm-hmm. um, like when you w- go back and watch something like Labyrinth, like, mm. l- I mean, it's not an amazing film, but luckily there's enough weird stuff in there for it to be like, oh, okay, there is something about the movie. Whereas uh, the Goonies, if you're not in the mood for it, it's just going to fall flat. Do you know what I mean? Because it's it's going to be very shrill. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, think like I watched The Dark Crystal like two years ago, and I was like, "This is a really weird film with a lot of dark stuff in it." But the actual film is terrible. Mm. Um, you know the the plot and everything, and the, the dialogue I think was written on a fag packet five minutes before they started filming. <laughs> but you know, there's there's enough in it to be like, "Oh, okay, that's kind of cool." But like, I would have been happier leaving that in the past. Uh, yeah, for that, things like Clash of the Titans I used to love when I was younger, like. Mm. You know, it's a cool monster movie, but like the film itself is actually pretty bad. Yeah, it's. It, I think that applies to a lot of the Harry House and stuff. As great as his approach to f- like physical effects were, not the most uh, energetic or dynamic movies mm-hmm. in terms of like storytelling and acting and things like that. Still pref- preferable to like the remake from seven years ago, but yeah, still still not great. Yeah, one of the things that like when they announced they were remaking it, a lot of people rolled their eyes, and I was like, "Guys, like, you remember the original, right? Like, Mm. it it was just an excuse to get from monster to monster to monster." I was like, "Well, if you're going to do that now, like, why not have a better go at it?" But they still fucked it up. Yeah, maybe maybe it's just not enough material there for it to to really work. Mm. Uh, Yeah, I think in terms of uh, in terms of like childhood movies, like there are some. Like I watched, I think we talked about this before, but I watched Song of the South a lot as a kid mm-hmm. because it was released on VHS in the UK for some reason in the night in the eighties, and I just watched every Disney movie. And it, because it was a Disney movie, I watched it, and I di- I it didn't really the, the the kind of its depiction of race relations in the post post Civil War South didn't really click with me as a six year old. I just thought, oh, Zippity Doodles is a really good song, <laughs> um, uh, and that definitely is one where I think. Uh, being a uncritical child uh, it probably made me think that movie was a lot 
better than it actually was and just being happy to be sat in front of a moving image mm. which i think is is probably true in a broader sense about most like movies that people watch as kids like it's just exciting to be sitting watching something like you may not necessarily be uh it may not actually be that good but you're just kind of like 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 the way that a lot of people really like hook like I didn't like Hook as a kid because I just found it really weird and gross and off-putting, but a lot of people like a super like Hook, and like I've tried watching it a few years ago just to see like if I was wrong and everyone else was right and this was like a magical movie, and I watched it. I was like, oh, this is awful. <laughs> this is so staid and uninteresting. Uh, and like yeah all those people are wrong Mm. (laughs) i know this episode is about how we're wrong about things but that is one of the cases where i will emphatically say (laughs) i I have been right for 27 26 years at this point Mm. did you have any films that um were that you now like that you didn't have a strong reaction to in the first place much like me with uh, apocalypse now the others mine weirdly are like the things that came to mind where i kind of thought that were comedies Mm -hmm. And I think specifically the two were Hot Fuzz yeah. and Burn After Reading, mm-hmm. both of which I think suffered because they came after predecessors that I really responded to. Obviously, Shaun of the Dead and, and Spaced were like two of my favourite things mm-hmm. when I saw Hot Fuzz. And when I watched it, I thought, this is, it's got some good jokes, but it's also like really long and baggy and like the style's really overbearing. And like it didn't, I, I enjoyed it, but it was like I just thought, well, that scene that felt really disposable. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like over the years, if it's been the one that I've rewatched the most, just because it is really weird. Because like it is once you accept the fact that it's not got a huge amount of emotional depth to it, uh, it is hugely enjoyable. And particularly like I think at that time I hadn't watched as many of the hyper edited Tony Scott style movies that they were making fun of. Mm-hmm. And once you do watch that, you think, oh, this is actually a really sharp satire of a very specific kind of kind of emotionally empty filmmaking. And also it just has lots of really, really funny gags. Mm. Uh, And there's also that just sense. And the same with Burn After Reading, you know, it came out on the heels of No Country for Old Men. And it had a great trailer with um, using the elbow song Grounds for Divorce which was like, made you think, oh, this is going to be a really fun one. And then I watched it and I was like, this is, it, it, for me, it all just got, like, fell completely flat and I didn't really chime with its particular brand of kind of comic nihilism. Mm-hmm. And then I rewatched it last year after the election and it really chimed with me at that point, mainly because everyone's constantly saying, the Russians? <laughs> uh, it's just like, it confused me. But I found its particular brand of like, chaos really really good the second time round and the first time round I think I just kind of like went in thinking well after they did this kind of uh draining uh dark best picture winner they just kind of like squandered the goodwill as opposed to thinking oh this was actually almost kind of like the comic counterpart to that movie mm. um I had a similar reaction to Hot Fuzz actually because I saw it at the cinema and I was like yes this feels uh very smart but like there's a point at which I'm saying that's a smart movie and I'm forgetting about what's going on. And it's just a series of like very funny jokes that I don't care about because there's no emotional involvement. But then Mm. that film is constantly on ITV two in the UK. And if I catch any of it, I will pretty much watch it all the way to the end. 
um, mm. because there's so much to enjoy. And I think that it's so dense with jokes and references that you can initially probably say it's disposable, but then the more you watch it, the more you think, oh, actually, this is incredibly well-crafted. And um, these guys have not only like a kind of in-depth knowledge of all the films they're parodying, but like also a lot of affection whilst also telling a uniquely British story using American mm. action movie tropes. Yeah, it's definitely one, I think that's true of all of Edgar Wright's work, is that there are so many kind of things layered into it. And this was also true to a lesser extent of, of Scott Pilgrim versus The World, which I really enjoyed on first viewing. Mm-hmm. And then like on subsequent viewing, when you kind of peel back the layers, it becomes more and more enjoyable. But that was there was definitely kind of this sense of like, watching it on first viewing it you know he makes movies that are really designed to be watched like 10 times he he has this kind of like arrested development in that regard like you may watch it and think that was pretty good like the first time but then once you've watched it a bunch of times you suddenly kind of think oh no this was actually like a really really good movie and i see why he's held up as such a, a great modern filmmaker mm. which I, i've always liked edgar wright but like that was one with hot fuzz where i went from being like oh this was really disappointing to like you say every time it appears on tv i'm like i'm gonna watch like an hour of this because it's just so so eminently watchable mm. i wonder if we'll feel the same way about baby driver because uh mm. you and i have both said that we enjoyed the film this year but like me, I, me specifically, I kind of felt that like as soon as I walked out of it, I was like, I had a great time with that film. I've just had 90 minutes of hugely enjoyable cinema, but I'm pretty sure I won't remember very much of it other than the fact that there was music like a week later. And I'm very worried that that will be the case. But then also we're just talking about Hot Fuzz um, and Scott Pilgrim as well is another film that I was kind of like just OK on when I saw it. But then I've grown to like it with every watching uh, more and more. Um, I wonder if we'll feel the same way about Baby Driver. Maybe, although I wonder, maybe it's just a case of like, again, you have to rewatch it to see the different things that he's trying. Mm-hmm. But on first viewing, it didn't have a, as much meat to it as the other ones. Like it didn't seem to be, it just seemed to be about delivering a kind of a a kinetic experience as opposed to the other movies where even if you didn't 100% like it, you could t- tell that he was trying to do something uniquely like British and comment on society in some way. Whereas this one, it was just kind of like, hey, cars are cool. Mm-hmm. Music's nice. <laughs> Let's see what happens when we put them together. Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, like, like you say, I think for me, the way I've described it is like I could see like the letterbox score going down with each day after watching it. Like watching it, I thought, hey, that was like a four star experience. And then like as each day passed, it kind of dropped, dropped like a half, a half, a half. And you kind of get to the point where it's like, oh, yeah, I did see that movie. Mm, that happened. Uh, yeah, that was a movie that I saw uh, and that uh, it didn't ultimately didn't leave much of an impression. But who knows, maybe after catching it on TV like 30 times, mm. it will it will that opinion will change. Um, another one that I kind of thought of in, in, in the category of movies that I was really, really into for a time, which now I look back and think, mm, no, there wasn't a lot there. That there wasn't much there there was uh, Sin City. Yeah, because... I, I have it on my list as well. Yeah, because when that came out, it's like, oh man, they're taking this gritty comic and they're going to trans, they're transporting it entirely to the screen, and it looks exactly like the book. And it's like this, they made it all in a warehouse, and it's all digitally generated, and all that stuff is like, oh man, this is really exciting. It's the cutting edge of digital cinema, or whatever. And it's very much a case where I think we've talked about this before, where 
the 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 production of a movie kind of overwhelms the movie itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, another example, this would be something like Escape from Tomorrow, mm-hmm. which was a movie that had like a fantastic story about how it was made. But when but now when I think about the actual story, I'm like that was kind of a gross movie mm-hmm. <laughs> that I, I don't really think holds up to much scrutiny. Beside the fact that it was very interesting how they shot it, um, I definitely feel that with Sin City, where I think yeah, it was very stylish and. Uh, it was it was impressive how well they transferred what was on the page to the screen, but you know the same can be true of Three Hundred, and that's not a movie that I care for at all. Mm, and we've said this many times before that uh, Sin City and uh, Mister Rodriguez um, and uh, is it Frank Miller who writes it? The yeah. they are um, au fait with the affectations of noir, but mm. have literally no idea what it's actually about. Um, yeah, and we have you know just because it's black and white, <laughs> and it's uh, like moodily shot does not a noir make, and it's I find I find since it is another film that's on ITV two a lot, um, mm-hmm. I make it sound like I watch ITV two a lot. That's not the case at all. <laughs> um, but like, and if like that's the one that I will if I see a bit of it, I'll be like, oh, this leaves a bad taste in the mouth, and then mm-hmm. move on quickly because there's so much in there not to like yeah and the sequel was so obnoxiously bad hmm i didn't see the sequel oh it's horrible that was very much at the point where i was like i really don't think sin city is very good even though i have like the deluxe free disc free disc edition that came out ages ago because i was like like i bought all of the books i can see them sitting on my shelf right now Mm. uh I haven't touched them in 10 years because again, like you say, you, you think, Oh, these guys have watched the noir. They've watched a noir movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, they understand what the tropes are, but you know, just in terms of even how their, their, that movie treats the female characters. One of the things about noir that's fascinating is that, you know, it has the, the femme fatale characters, but female characters in noirs often have a lot of agency and like they are, the catalyst for the story, if you look at something like Double Indemnity, like Barbara Stanwyck is the one who's driving that story and she has a lot of power. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's not true about any of the female characters in in uh, in Sin City. It's like the idea in there of female power is at one point they all stand on a rooftop and shoot people with machine guns. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has to be said, it's a somewhat shallow understanding of the genre. Yeah, and in the sequel as well, it's like they've just boiled that down to tits. <laughs> essentially all they can they can muster and it's uh yeah it's uh, a 15 year old boy's one-handed version of the noir uh, <laughs> style i have to say uh watchman i am really ashamed to say um that when that movie came out and i saw it i actually thought it was okay mm. and then since then every time i remind myself that i thought that i want to punch myself in the face <laughs> with two hands yeah, I had almost the exact same experience with Watchmen. Like, I watched it, and I thought, and I think even in like the review I wrote of it at the time, I basically phrased it that way, which was like, I I watched it, I thought I didn't hate that, and then like a few days later, I just after thinking about it, I was just like, I fucking hated that movie. <laughs> it's just, it took like a couple of days for everything I disliked about it to really sink in, and it was really that was a real kind of like strange process that I wait, went from of just kind of thinking, eh, no, it could have been worse, to thinking, mm. that was dreadful. <laughs> they did a really, really bad job of uh, transferring that story to the big screen, even though they 
on you know on paper they took like every image and just like yep okay we frame this exactly like dave gibbons did good job done which obviously Mm. is is the problem but like that that it was only took me like a couple of days to really think about why exactly that was such a a, a shitty way to make a movie Mm. i think uh one other way of like being wrong about a movie or um, or maybe not getting it the first time is um, is circumstance. Like you mm. can be in the wrong mood for a movie, and that's happened many times. Where especially yeah. a comedy, like you say, you know, you've just not been in the right mood for it. But there are kind of exceptional circumstances, which mean that you can think like you know think differently of a film. Like I was when I was away last year, I was on a very long bus journey mm. um, through Patagonia in southern Argentina. And there's long stretches of Patagonia. Patagonia is a beautiful part of the world. But there's long stretches of it where it's just barren, barren, bleak, like just gr- like grey brown hills with barbed wire fences with like like llama skeletons hanging off them. And you know it's just and you know these bus journeys. You look out the window and it's the same on hour one to the fact when it's on hour fifteen and you're on the buses sometimes for like thirty hours. And I was on one and I hadn't really slept. I was kind of sat on a seat that was like right by the heater. So I was kind of like in this fever that I was just kind of being driven mad by this circumstance. And then they put a movie on in the bus and it was the only movie they showed in English that night was uh, the remake of the National Lampoon's Vacation. Right. And at that point at like 11 a.m. where I hadn't slept since the previous night and um, I was kind of delirious I laughed so fucking hard at that film. That was the funniest <laughs> thing I'd ever seen. And at that point, and I, I, I think about it now, and I, um, I, I just, I'm so joyous at watching that movie and everything about it because for that that ninety minutes of the thirty six hour bus journey we were on, that brought so much joy to my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I know that if I sat down and watched that now, I would, it would be like. 88 mirthless minutes of like <laughs> just like dead silence but at that point at the time in in my life that is exactly what i needed mm. my example of, of something like that where i was just like so not in the mood for a movie uh, is kind of like from the opposite direction which was i once when i was working i think when i still worked at the showroom i got home from work i was just really really tired and i had a headache i'd been like on my feet all day and I couldn't get to sleep, but so I just decided uh, I'm just going to like put on a movie and fall asleep to it. And I put on the Alfred Hitchcock movie uh, To Catch a Thief with Cary Grant and Grace mm-hmm. Kelly, which is like a very, very charming movie. It's not one of his like best, but like in terms of a being a showcase for just a a, a master of the classic Hollywood style just kind of playing around with enthusiastic uh, with uh, charismatic stars. Mm-hmm. It's pretty great. Uh but like I was just so not for it. Like, I was just I was just sat there and just hated it <laughs> for the whole time. I was just like it just wasn't connecting with me with at all. And in what was probably the quickest turnaround on a movie I've ever had, I like finally fell asleep and then woke up and it was only like I don't know like 9 or 10 p.m. I was like I'm going to watch that movie again because I really don't think I was going to get a fair shake when I was just like hating everything. Uh, and like I watched it again and then suddenly it was like exactly as it was meant to be seen which is this like really nice little trifle that it's really uh, it's entirely possible to just sit there and watch and think oh this is nice mm. <laughs> uh, but yeah that was the fastest I've ever turned around on a movie I think 
Yeah, I um, in terms of circumstance as well, it's very easy sometimes to be swept up in in hype. We know that, mm. but it's also very easy to be swept up in how uh, a room feels. Yeah, um, and one example I can think of is it was a film from Docfest a couple of years ago um, called One Mile Away, mm. and I watched it, and the director was there. And it was a very kind of um, sympathetic audience. And the, the movie was about gangs in Birmingham and how they were kind of, uh, a lot of the gang members were trying to, the older gang members and people who'd kind of been in, in kind of trouble with the law and drugs and, and guns and stuff were trying to kind of kind of reverse the trend of, of, of kind of like kids going into gangs, going into prison. And there was like a lot of kind of like hip hop imagery in there and... We watched it, and then at the end, there was a big standing ovation. The director came out, and I was just like, oh, this film was really good, yeah? And I kind mm. of like got into it, and then didn't really think about it much after that. And then a few months later, I was like, I've not really heard much about that film since. It hasn't really kind of got any traction. I've not really kind of seen it anywhere since then. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's because it wasn't very good. It was a really <laughs> kind of white, middle-class, liberal, hand-wringing film about like problems in urban Birmingham mm. and I was like I feel really dirty about like standing up and clapping for that now yeah um, because there was no no way was that like worthy of a standing ovation mm. um but like I did it because everyone else was doing it <laughs> I was like I, oh that was weird and now I felt dirty because I kind of felt tricked into liking it because everyone else in the room did mm. and I, I thought it was okay but like it wasn't standing ovation worthy yeah I think for me, like an example of that, and I'm, I'm not entirely sure if I'm wrong on this movie yet, but because I haven't rewatched it in a while, but I remember really, really enjoying uh, Herbie Fully Loaded. <laughs> no, I think you're wrong on that. Yeah, I may be wrong on that, <laughs> but I remember really enjoying it because I went to see it. This was in 2005, and I was on holiday with my family. We were in Florida before before everyone moved here. Um, we were on, we were just on a holiday and it was, it was one of many movies they went to watch just to get out of the heat because mm. sometimes the only place you can go is to an air conditioned theater. That's one of the reasons why I've seen the first Scooby-Doo movie. Like there was nothing else about it that, that really would have made me want to go and see it, but it happened to be on that and rain of fire as mm. well. Um, and in the case of like Herbie fully loaded, the thing about it that I think made me and weirdly my mum really enjoy it was how much my dad and my sister did not like it <laughs> and how they were really having, they just did not care for it at all. And they were the one who forced us to leave like an hour in when Lindsay Lohan and uh, Herbie are taking part in a monster truck rally while Jump by Van Halen plays on the soundtrack. Maybe this is a bad movie. <laughs> um, just describing it now, I'm thinking it's probably a very bad movie. But it was like one of those things where their clear dislike of it made us laugh more than the movie itself was doing. Uh, I think that that swayed me more than anything else. Mm, yeah. It's, I think it's, it's interesting how we are always talking about comedies when we're talking about being in the right mood for things. Mm. Um, and there's an example I can think of, which follows the standing ovation um, example, but one I didn't fall for. Um, I went to see, <laughs> went to visit a friend at university and he was at university in Loughborough and we were like, we'd been out the night before and we we're all in very bad shape the next day. Mm. And we said, what do we want to do today? Let's go to the cinema. And we went to see American Pie 2. Okay. <laughs> okay. 
that movie in this cinema in Loughborough got a standing ovation at the end <laughs> from everyone apart from me. Because I was like, seriously, what's happened here? Like, you know, what kind of Twilight, Twilight Zone shit is this? Because, <laughs> um, you know, this is not cool, guys. And I wonder if any of those people, like, in that room still hold American Pie 2 dear to their hearts as being their favourite film now. I mm. doubt it. Uh, I'm At least one of them, I think, does. They were just, like, so, so moved by the experience on that day, on that specific mm, day, that yeah. it's, um, it's, it's remained inter- a happy moment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think as well, like like I said earlier, maturity plays a big part in whether you enjoy something. But I also think kind of going through life change, I guess, uh, mm. changes your perception of things. Like 10 years ago, no, maybe, maybe, maybe 15 years ago, me wouldn't think, wouldn't like as many musicals as I do. Yeah, um, and it's something that like uh, people tried to get me into when I was younger. Like you know, I had an ex girlfriend who was always pushing musicals on me. Um, that sounds really terrible. <laughs> what an awful life I led. Um, <laughs> but like you know, um, you will enjoy this. Um, but like that's what she was into. And at that point in my life, I was not interested at all. And then as I've got older, like you know, I regret not being into more musicals when I was younger because uh, I've got so much joy out of seeing them. But the idea mm. that, that like I never would have watched the Rocky horror show, Rocky horror picture show 15 years ago, but now it's a film that I will always, if someone says, Do you want to watch it? I'll be like, yeah, of course. Um, and it's, it's something that like, I, I don't know whether it's the, like I was way too cynical in my twenties um, and I've just become a bit more accepting and, and like happy to just, like enjoy things for what they mm. are um or whether i've just kind of like mellowed as a person generally i'm not sure i think that is definitely an a evolution that i've seen myself go through i think when i was in like when i started to get really into movies in my teens and my 20s i think any examples of earnest uncynical sentiment uh i would find really off-putting in movies because mm-hmm. like you think oh i'm too sophisticated for a movie to actually play on my emotions god why would i mm. why would i cry at a movie or whatever and like that is absolutely not the case now i cry at everything now and mm. i think it's just a case of like you know it, particularly if you think about cinema in the 90s and culture in the 90s it's all about irony and postmodernism and everything and everyone kind of joking about the conventions that we're all familiar with as opposed to like saying hey we're all familiar with these things because like they genuinely work and i think in uh so so like i think that's one of the reasons why now i'm i'm much i'm such a a fan of like classic hollywood movies because that's pretty much what all has classic hollywood movies are is that they're kind of very earnest and even the, the funny ones you know they try and pull at the heartstrings and when i was younger i'd be like oh that's just like really manipulative or whatever and now i'm just kind of like no that's just kind of how how storytelling works and i think that's why uh i really enjoyed like some of like steven spielberg's later works like stuff like bridge of spies or lincoln which aren't up there with his his best stuff like in terms of like visceral visceral entertainment or whatever but like just as as the works of like an older director who's just kind of like i'm just going to make like movies about what america means to me <laughs> and what it means to uh what what this country and what uh you know what being a citizen of this country means and, and you know the spirit of the place 
Uh, and like, I don't know. I, I think now I respond to that in a way that I would not have like 10 years ago. Uh, mm. And interestingly, that's like his like most cynical period was like the period when I was most into his work when it was like Minority Report or whatever. And it's mm. like, oh yeah, this is great. Have you got any films that you have seen that a lot of people love, but at first bite of the apple, you begin like you've kind of been like, oh, ugh, and you've never revisited? Oh, that's an interesting question. I think. I've never revisited. I think um, one that kind of leaps to mind. I know you'll be horrified at this. Was is uh, one from the heart, oh, which yeah. is yep. the Francis Ford Coppola movie, which I love the the soundtrack to because it's. Mm-hmm. A, I love Tom Waits, and I think his collaborations with Crystal Gale on that are really really good. But when I watched it, I was like, I, so much I think had been made of it as being like. You know, you know, it was this movie that destroyed American zoetrope, and it was like this kind of big hubristic thing. And I was really excited. Like, I'm always excited to watch a movie like that because I I want to be one of the people like reclaiming movies as lost masterpieces. I don't want to be just watch see a movie that everyone shits on and say, oh yeah, it is bad. Uh, I wanted to, I want to watch one and be like, no, no people miss this, and that one was just one. I was like, mm, it's just not, it's just not working for me. Mm. Um, and the same uh, New York, New York is another one where like people like I understand why people like it. So he's he's trying to bring kind of a seventies realness to a kind of a Vincent Minnelli style musical, and I just watch it. I think, God, this is a fucking drag. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's quite. Gr- I find it quite a grueling experience. New York, New York. Um, yeah, um, I think that's a film that I've had to watch in segments um, mm. because yeah, it's not. It's a bit of a. Uh, uh, a slog to get through. Um, yeah. I've got three examples of films that are much loved by people that I've only seen once and I mm. really don't want to watch again, but I think I'll probably be more receptive to them because my life has changed significantly since I saw them and mm. perhaps I might be in a better mood to watch them now, the three films that everyone seems to love that I did not uh, get on with particularly well are The Departed, mm-hmm. uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, mm. and Amelie. Yeah, I'm not a big lover of Amelie. It's it's one I find like like you say, everyone really, really, really loves it, and I can I can kind of see why. But whenever I watch it, it's like I really wish I liked this as much as everyone else does because it's mm. just it's just kind of so overwhelmingly kind of quirky in <laughs> like in in a way that can get so suffocating. And there are but like Audrey Tattoo, of course, is like great. Had like such a, a luminous presence, but I, I'm not sure if all of the kind of like the half baked philosophy uh, of the character really stands up to much scrutiny. Mm-hmm. Um, the Depart is one that I've definitely gone back and forth on because I remember watching it and just being like electrified by it when I saw it in the cinema, and they've been like really excited when Scorsese won the Oscar, and then like rewatching it on home media maybe part of it is just like you lose the losing the theatrical experience or whatever but certainly mm. watching it on dvd or tv uh going into case of like oh man this is very baggy and i'm not sure what vera mm. Firmiga's character is in this for like she's not particularly well served by the material and mm. nicholson is very big uh <laughs> and like suddenly all of its imperfections come into very sharp relief um and then like on the second viewing being really kind of put off by it but then Watching it subsequently, it kind of has become one of those movies where I think it's just really, really watchable. Like, it's something that you can just kind of put on and it has some really exciting stuff. 
Uh, and it's kind of it's kind of reached this equilibrium now where for a while I was really super into it and then for a while I was really put off by it and now I'm like, oh, that's all right. Uh, yeah. The Matrix has gone through pretty much the exact same kind of path for me where when it first came out... Actually, no, with The Matrix, I didn't like as much as everyone else because everyone hyped it up so much. And I was like, mm. yeah, it's great. Spoon, yeah. I, yeah, it's great. Um, and then, like, re-watching it, I've gradually kind of really like it and then the sequels came out and they were so off-putting uh that then i i disliked the original matrix and now i'm like no that first movie really holds up as a really good action movie mm, yeah the departed for me I, I kind of have said it many times before but just felt like someone running through martin scorsese's greatest hits mm. and doing a kind of a martin scorsese parody and yeah. there were moments like brief moments during jack nicholson's time on screen where i was like I could be watching the Boondock Saints here, <laughs> I mean, uh, and not in a good way. Yeah. So yeah, like um, that might sound sacrilege to people because a lot of people love The Departed and put it as the kind of like high tier Scorsese. But oh, the idea of going back to watch it again makes me feel quite ill. Yeah. The um, yeah, I'm glad the Boondock Saints isn't one that I fell for. <laughs> I don't think anyone fell for the Boondock Saints. I, I definitely who made it. I yeah, Troy Duffy yeah. Uh, I, I definitely had friends who were super into the Boondock Saints when it came out, and when when not not when it came out, but like two or three years later when it hit DVD, and against all odds became like a a staple of university shared houses the country over. Mm-hmm. Um, there were definitely people who were like really into it, and I remember watching, thinking, just watching it, thinking, oh, even even like as a not especially sophisticated film viewer thinking this is very derivative of like about 20 different directors who are all doing the same thing of whose work was derivative of other stuff yeah um yeah it was it was the uh the kind of ocean color scene of the uh, <laughs> of that post sundance movie. that's very harsh an ocean color scene i could have thought worse <laughs> like hurricane number one or something you know just think of a worse band um, but uh, the eternal sunshine of a spotless mind for me, I was just like, oh, this is so fucking twee. I can't, I just can't deal with it. I can't. Mm. And that maybe that's it. Maybe now as I'm an older, perhaps more placid person, I will be able to deal with it uh, without the kind of air of snotty cynicism that I had when I watched it the first time. Also, I think if you've watched some of, uh, of Michelle Gondry's subsequent movies, uh, it's pretty grounded compared to something like <laughs> The Science of Sleep. Yeah, which uh, I, I I mean I like a lot of his subsequent movies like uh, Be Kind Rewind's pretty fun, mm-hmm. but yeah they all do get kind of lost in their own attempts to be yeah twee quirky or whatever you want to call it and I think that when when compared to those I think the the bleakness of Charlie Kaufman's vision of the world really helps drag him down to earth, mm-hmm. uh, but but at the same time like Michel Gondry's kind of like I don't know his kind of French. Uh, kind of helps drag like the 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 darkness that can make something like uh, Synecdoche, New York, almost kind of un unbearable. Uh, you know, kind of gives it a little bit of a spark. Mm. Um, I just thought of another film that I used to love as a kid, and I say as a kid, as like a teenager, and watched mm. a lot. Um, kind of before I went to university, had it on video and practically wore the thing out, and then didn't see it for about. 12 or 15 years, I think, and I watched it last year and was blown away by how badly the film is dated, hmm. um, but also kind of saw how far I've come in that time was uh, From Dust Till Dawn. Oh, yeah. 
which it was a, like for one night when I was younger, I was just like, yeah, there's vampires, there's people shooting them, there's this big kind of like U-turn in the middle of the film where it's like a, some bank robbers have just gone into a bar and all of a sudden it's a monster movie now. And I watch it like last year and I'm like, oh, this is really terrible. Hmm. Yeah, that's one that I remember that, you know, it's of that genre of movie that's just always on. Mm-hmm. And so you watch it and you think, oh, man, this is cool, the way this is playing with convention or whatever. And I guess Rod- Rod- Robert Rodriguez may just kind of embl- uh, exemplify this whole idea for people of our generation who came up when, uh, you know, people were really excited about El Mariachi. Mm-hmm. And like the whole, you know, oh, he, you know, he he had medical experiments done on himself to raise money for this low budget thing. And then he became a film director. Uh, like a lot of that stuff like doesn't hold up. It's just that he had a very compelling story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that one definitely, yeah, that one doesn't really hold up. Especially because like all the vampire stuff is actually really shitty compared to the first half of the movie. Yeah. Like the first half is a, a really fun, but uncomfortable thriller. And then... Yeah, then vampires show up and it all becomes like bad special effects. Mm, yeah, yeah, and and bad special effects, but not in a good way. Like really poor CGI mm. um, in the times where they were they were they were pushing it when they perhaps weren't quite ready to. Yeah, um, what's the the movie most recently that you can think of that you've really turned around on? Because I I had a movie that I turned around on like in the last month like i saw it within the last month and then within like two weeks i'd gone from not being that impressed with it to being like oh maybe that was one of the best movies of the year (laughs) uh which was david lowry's a ghost story Mm -hmm. um which i watched and i was like this is a like i was like oh that was that was odd that was a very odd stylistic choice and 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 appreciating that you know he was doing like a you know a version of like Taiwanese slow cinema, but in an American context and that he had like this central ridiculous image of Casey Affleck in a sheet, uh, you know, to look like a traditional Halloween ghost, but not really kind of thinking that much of it. And then like a week later I was visiting my mum and dad and I was telling my dad about it. And as I was describing the movie, I got really choked up and emotional about it. And I was like, oh, actually, I love that movie. And like, it was, it was like, it really dawned on me then. Like, it, it clearly been growing in my estimation since then, but it was only after describing it to someone else and like talking about some of the details of the plot and the, the, the strange turns it takes that I was suddenly like, oh, wow, that was actually, yeah, that was actually a really, really great movie. And everyone was right. <laughs> but, and I had completely underrated it. Um, yeah, um, it's funny how that happens. For me, it was um, a film, and I went the other way with it, as in I really enjoyed mm. it and then um, really turned on it, like really hostile. <laughs> it was a film that came out maybe five years ago uh, mm-hmm. called Friends with Kids. Um, and right. it's a comedy starring uh, Jennifer Westfelt, who also wrote and directed it, her mm. um, real-life husband, uh, John Hamm. It's got uh, Kristen Wiig in it, Adam Scott, um, Maya Rudolph, um, Edward Burns, Megan Fox, mm. Chris O'Dowd, a really good cast of people. I generally like all of them, and I like their work. And I watched it, and I was in a really, really good mood, obviously, because I thought, 
oh, that's a really good movie, and I really enjoyed that, and I think more people should see that film. And then I recommended it to someone, and they were like, are you fucking serious? I saw that film, it was dreadful. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, that's a bit harsh. And then like the next day I was like, shit, yeah, that film was terrible. And if I think about <laughs> it, I think, oh, my God. And it, oh, it's just got this really really kind of flat horrible ending which leaves mm. such a, like an unpleasant taste in the mouth um and yeah it's uh i, I know it's, it's difficult for me to pin down what it was about it that made me like it so much and i all i can really attribute my disproportionate love for that film in that brief uh like two hours that i spent with it was i just really liked everyone involved and i really wanted it to be good and i was yeah. really pulling for them you like you go and see like your friend's like shitty amateur play that he's in and you're like oh that was really good but if you were watching that and you didn't know anyone in it you'd be like that was like a monumental waste of life um <laughs> and like you, you go and see your mate's band play and you're like oh yeah mate you were great like but you're like if I was if I just wandered into that bar that'd have been terrible, mm. and I think that was it. I'm not saying I'm friends with Kristen Wiig and, and John Hamm, um, <laughs> but, but you want to be. I want to be, and I think that's what it was. But yeah, the film is oh man, I think about it now, and uh, that that wasn't good. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm trying to think. I think uh, one that I it wasn't so much that I liked the the cast or anything. It was definitely a movie that I just I just really wanted to like because I thought it was trying to do really interesting things mm-hmm. and like I thought uh, in terms of the genre it was in I was like oh this is like a you know this is trying to do some very different things was M Night Shyamalan's The Happening right okay which was a movie I don't know if you've seen The Happening is it the one with the trees. It's the, the one where the, the trees plants. are killing everyone. I haven't. Yes. I have for my shame, and there's a lot of like really dreadful movies that I love watching. I have not seen the happening, and I, I want to. I've seen bits of it, but I've not seen the whole thing. And I'm, it's one that I definitely, definitely want to see. I, I definitely say it's worth watching for the uh, for the bad movie viewer. Mm-hmm. But like at the time it came out, I was like, I was really enthusiastic about it after watching it because I thought like because it's it's a horror movie that takes place mostly out side and in the daylight and there are points in it where the place that people have to go to take the safest place to be is like an old decrepit falling down house and like it's doing all these things which intellectually i'm like man it's it's really inverting the horror genre in like a major way Mm -hmm. i think i really liked it all intellectually and i remember like watching it and then afterwards just kind of being like yeah yeah you know it's, it's doing all this this really really cool stuff and then like years later watching it on tv and thinking everyone in this movie is terrible every <laughs> performance is bad like the, the the pacing is completely terrible the it looks not especially good which is like one of the basic things that and like Shyamalan is good at is he makes good looking movies mm. uh, and i was like i just realized that i had been so far off the mark on its quality but purely because it in my mind i was thinking this is it's trying some interesting thing that it must have some sort of redeeming quality and really what it was is like he was just making a very bad horror movie that i thought was trying a lot of interesting things mm, yeah we're just trying to pull for people we're just nice guys and uh yeah. sometimes it bites us on the ass that's definitely the case mm. uh, any other kind of things you want to confess before we finish um any ones that really leap out to you as movies that you look at and you think Boy, oh boy, I was I was way off on that one. Um, not so much way off, but there was a kind of an interesting philosophical thing that I 
kind of thought about whilst doing this. And when mm-hmm. I thought about my response to Watchmen, I then thought about yeah. the film Sucker Punch. And I thought oh, yeah. how much it made me feel physically ill whilst watching it. And <laughs> the fact that, you know, it was repellent on pretty much every single level. But then yeah. I also thought that, like, 15-year-old me would have thought this was the best thing ever. Mm. Which was a quite a big yeah. thing to say that, like, you know, I've... You know, I listened to a lot of Oasis back then. Um, and, you know... The, yeah, the, that's the, the the comparison that I can draw. That like you know you know when you discover like I li- listened to Oasis a lot when I was fifteen, but then I heard actual music when I got a bit older, <laughs> and then I was like, oh shit, yeah, there is there's some good stuff out here. Um, mm. And I think that was the case with like if I saw Sucker Punch when I was fifteen, that would have that would have been relevant to all of my interests at fifteen. Um, yeah. But as a kind of thirty two year old man, I think when I saw it, I was like just repelled. Um, mm. and uh, upset and disgusted, um, whereas the, you know, 15-year-old loaded reader <laughs> that was uh, <laughs> knocking around Suffolk at the time, I would have thought that was the greatest thing ever. So if that's a mark of how you can mature as a, as a human and grow uh, with your cultural input, that's it. Yeah, I I kind of felt that uh, when thinking about, like, like one of my favourite movies of this year was, like, God's Own Country. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is uh, for people who don't know, is it's like a, a gay romance set on a farm in Yorkshire, essentially. Mm-hmm. And part of what I like about it is it's just it's just nice to see Yorkshire. You know, I miss it so. Mm-hmm. But also, like I, when I was watching it, or just after watching it, I was thinking that's that's a movie that me at like fourteen, fifteen would not have dared watch mm-hmm. because everyone at school would have made fun of me for watching a movie centered around gay themes. Yeah. Uh, and like, just when you're a kid and like being accused of being gay is just like the most horrendous thing for like a straight kid to do, to, to have kind of said about them. Mm-hmm. And that kind of breeds homophobia in you as you just, just go through life and just kind of like, it gets to that like Roger Ebert thing of like cinema being a thing, a machine that generates empathy mm-hmm. and like, that you know i don't have to just watch movies about people who are like me i can watch movies about people from all walks of life I, that definitely feels like a a a, a form of growth on my part mm, being I, able to just say, say hey i can watch like magic mike double xl and be like hey this is like one of the most fun movies of the last like 10 years that i've seen yeah and it's it, like the same would be true of me at the, the same point but like you know i wouldn't have thought anything of watching most of the action movies back then the most homoerotic things ever and mm-hmm. there i was just there just lapping it up but the thought of watching anything um you know like my god's own, god's own country or whatever would have been mortifying to me as a as a as an immature stupid idiot um mm. but you know there's you know nothing homoerotic about predator <laughs> for example <laughs> but you know that was my one of my favorite films back then and you know now i see it now i see it so yeah, so so we're we're more advanced people now, mm. uh, and in in ten years' time, we'll look back on this and think, God, they were fucking idiots for liking. I don't know. What do we like now? What movies do we like? Uh, I still like Predator. To be fair, Predator. <laughs> yeah, Predator. Predator is eternal. Yeah, P- Predator is 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 great for all time, but you maybe enjoy it on different levels <laughs> as you get older. <laughs> yeah. Um, Okay, so we end the show, as always, with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, in which we talk about a piece of culture that we think people should check out. Matt, what have you got for us this week? So, 
I'm not going to recommend this film, but I was watching uh, Swiss Army Man the other day, mm. um, which I'm still not sure if that's a good film or not. It's certainly a very unique and interesting film. Um, um, if you don't know it, you'll, you'll probably know it as the film in which Daniel Radcliffe plays a farting corpse with a magnetic boner. Um, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, I you go and see it if that's your thing. Um, but the thing that kind of why I'm going to recommend comes off of that because Paul Dano was in it. And I always see Paul Dano, and I, I always think the same every time I see him. He's good in pretty much everything he does, right? Mm. And if he's in it, like even if the film's not very good, he's worth watching. And that made me uh, think about a film I saw of his like a couple of years ago, which very nearly made our top ten for the year, but didn't quite make the cut. Um, and it's the film Love and Mercy. Um, oh, which yeah. is the uh, biopic of Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys. And now you and I, Ed, have talked at length on this show about how much we dislike uh, biopics and mm. uh, biography-style films because they all seem to fall into the same pitfalls of saying, well, they'll cast an actor and they end up inevitably just doing a good impersonation of them in a very um, humdrum, mediocre uh, retelling of the highlights of this person's life life in an attempt to get some acclaim uh, and a statuette on the mantelpiece whereas love and mercy takes a very different approach to the biopic and has two actors who in no way resemble brian wilson (laughs) um, and do not attempt to recreate his uh um kind of uh physical affectations or um um kind of look in a way that would be a shallow impersonation um they have Paul Dano, who plays Brian Wilson around the time that the Pet Sounds is recorded. And they have John Cusack, believe it or not, play Brian Wilson in his kind of um, kind of acid-fried 80s burnout years where he's kind of heavily medicated and essentially a prisoner. Um, and it hops back and forwards through time. And it's stylistically very interesting. And as a result, um, the film is absolutely brilliant and a film that is um even if you're not a beach boys fan just kind of finding out the kind of uh insane route to recovery that brian wilson has taken and like his approaches to recording in the 60s and how groundbreaking that was and his kind of like interpersonal relationships and the completely fucked up relationship he had with his kind of uh psychotherapist i think uh who was Mm. kind of his de facto manager and was kind of uh, writing himself in slowly into Brian Wilson's will the whole time is is you know fascinating and it's um, a really kind of interesting way of approaching a subject matter where if you think about like, we're going to make a film about Brian Wilson and he's uh, he's running up to Oscar season and you're going to get one actor playing him and it's going to be it's going to be Ray, basically. The Ray Giles story is going to be dull and flat mm. and uninteresting. But they completely took it in a different direction and it is uh, heartily recommended from me. And Paul Dano is a huge part of that because he plays the young Brian Wilson with this kind of uh, infectious enthusiasm for creating and music and kind of hinting at the darkness which is to come, which John Cusack brings out just like really well with his kind of like hangdog, deadpan uh kind of personality um the gloom that he brings to it is excellent because you, you you get this this huge breadth of performance because you've got two different actors doing two completely different things and it covers way more ground you could ever do in a conventional biopic and for that reason i recommend love of mercy yeah great movie got a bit of press at the time it came 
out, but not nearly enough, I don't think. Hmm. I'm going to recommend, and this is a movie that I wouldn't say I was wrong about because I didn't see it when it came out, but uh, I guess in the sense that I was wrong to dismiss it out of hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and also because like when we were talking about my alert, uh, my... Uh, being allergic to all forms of earnest storytelling when I was younger, um, I recently watched the Wachowskis adaptation of the 1960s cartoon anime series Speed Racer, which is a movie that I think has been gaining something of a cult in, in recent years. And uh, I think deservedly so. It's a visual marvel. It's this kind of crazy, very forward thinking attempt to try and use the to, to push the limits of digital technology and animation to create a world which would be impossible to realise in tradi- using traditional movie-making techniques and wedding it to a story that is very commercial, you know, essentially about a young man who uh, is a kind of a race car driver, loves to race, but is being kind of tried to be lured into a deal with a corporate entity. And, you know, it's, it's a very traditional story about someone just trying to stand up for their own beliefs and things like that. But what I really like about it is just how strange it is mm. because visually it, it it uses kind of editing techniques that uh, I think most people would find really off-putting. Some of its transitions are just like bizarre uh, and it is clearly trying to take the visual language of anime and realise it in a in a physical form. But it also has these just like completely strange tonal shifts. Like it will go from our, our hero winning a race but opting at the last second to reduce his speed so that he wouldn't beat the record of his dead brother which is this moment of real high complicated emotion and then the next scene is his younger brother and a chimpanzee watching a cartoon (laughs) and then acting it out and being sucked into the cartoon or you know uh, a scene in which roger allen playing this embodiment of corporate greed is giving this Ned Beatty and network style speech about the the evils of corporate malfeasance and how they control everything uh, being intercut with said young child and chimp riding around a day glow retro futurist uh, uh, underground layer in a golf cart and it's just like it's just like it's so so strange uh, and that's kind of what I love about it I think that's that's another thing that I've learned to appreciate over the years is like messiness and the idea of filmmakers basically saying I'm gonna let my id go a little bit crazy in this I'm gonna let my personality infect this movie even if it ends up being less perfect uh, as a result and um, I really I really responded to that in Speed Race, it really feels like the Wachowskis making a big, bold statement about what they think art is mm-hmm. and doing it through a faintly ridiculous uh, attempt at blockbuster filmmaking, which obviously didn't work because they didn't make any money. But I, I think it's the cult it's developed is well-deserved because it's a very, very strange movie that I, I, I really, really loved. Mm. And the Wachowskis will, even if their films are terrible there's always something in it that's weird enough mm. to be interesting. Like Jupiter, Jupiter yeah. Ascending is dreadful, but like it's just too weird to be truly dreadful. Um, yes, it's compelling. It's compellingly dreadful. Absolutely. 
If you've enjoyed the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes or some other podcast app that isn't terrible, like Overcast, which is the one that I've switched to, and which took me ages to do because I listen to a lot of podcasts. It takes a long time to, to move them all over. Or Stitcher, Player FM, all the usual places. You can follow us on Twitter, SRS underscore podcast, or on Facebook. We'll be back next week with something entirely different, something spooky for Halloween. Mm. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. <laughs>